When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ever since we started this show, we've had the privilege of being invited to share our story on some other folks' really cool podcasts. One of those shows is Rock the Boat by friend of the pod, Lucia Liu, who you may have heard once before on our Modern Minorities podcast from the very beginning. Way back when, in 2020, Lucia flipped the mic on us, allowing Sharon and I to share some of our very story with her audience. You know, it's funny, listening back to that conversation, it is crazy to hear how much parenthood really shapes the perspectives that both Sharon and I have on this world. We hope you'll enjoy our conversation with Lucia, and be sure to check out some of the amazing conversations that Lucia has had on Rock the Boat, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I kept walking towards the elevator, pressed the button. We were wearing masks and all of that, so we had like all of our gear on, mm-hmm. and a few minutes later, she she ended up in the same elevator bank and she saw us again and then she stopped again and she refused to go any farther. And so the elevator came, the doors opened, my husband and I entered the elevator, the doors closed. And I looked at him and I was like, is that because, and he looked at me and he was like, yeah, he's like, welcome to my world. And I was like, oh my God, like I've experienced people unfortunately responding to my husband in that way sometimes because he's a black guy walking down the street. And I've actually mm. either been next to him when that's happened or I've like witnessed it. But I had never experienced someone responding to me that way. And it was just this moment of like not feeling safe. The thing that Chinese people have been going through in the last five years, I think all of us have had the moment, right? And 9-11 for brown people was that. I have a beard out of laziness, but I became clean shaven every time I traveled. I would always pack a razor. Mm. Whenever I would come back in the country from a backpacking trip to the Middle East or India or Europe or Latin America, I'd always pack a clean shirt for the Atlanta airport. Make sure I had my Alabama hat, spin up my accent a little bit when I'm saying thank you to the customs agent. The Southern charm comes out when I need to disarm. And I hate that I have to do that. It's this identity, this code switching, but it's a a survival mechanism. You're listening to Rock the Boat, a show about Asian Americans who challenge the status quo. Our past guests have included Andrew Yang, Michelle Fawn, Patrick Lee, and more. Our mission is to champion diversity in radio and elevate the voices of Asian Americans through storytelling. I'm your host, Lucia Liu. Hi, listeners. Today, I'm really excited to bring you a thoughtful and heartwarming conversation I had with Sharon Lee Tony and Raman Segal. They are the hosts of a purpose-driven podcast called Modern Minorities. Their podcast focuses on conversations with fellow modern minorities to uncover how different cultural backgrounds shape how we uniquely experience the world. Sharon and Raman have unique perspectives of what it means to be a modern minority because they're not only minorities themselves, but they've also married outside of their own race and have multiracial children. So in this conversation, Sharon and Raman open up about their upbringing and speak about how it has shaped the way they see the world. 
They also talk about why they've created Modern Minorities and the importance of those conversations in creating a better world for their kids. If you guys can quickly introduce yourselves and what you guys do, that would be great. Thank you so much for having us on the show. I'm just, I've become a really big fan as I've become a podcaster and people have been talking about your show. My name is Roman Segel. I'm a recovering marketer, which means I've worked on some of the world's biggest brands, some really fast growing startups with some interesting exits. And I'm kind of in this discovery year, sabbatical year, working on a few passion projects, some political action stuff, and a few podcasts. And Modern Minorities is probably the one I'm the most proud of because I think it can make the most difference in this world. And I'm Sharon Lee Tony, and I'm a career marketer. I'm very proud of it. By day, I run a digital marketing agency called SLT Consulting. We were recently acquired by Fiverr, so I'm also working at Fiverr as well at the moment. And then podcast-wise, I'm a co-host with Roman on Modern Minorities. We feature some really interesting guests from all different backgrounds, and we talk about race and gender and different perspectives on life. So very happy to be here and very happy to be on Rock the Boat as well. Amazing. Thank you, Sharon. And you're also a Whartonite, right? I am a Whartonite, yeah. Ooh, pen pride. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to open up with just a few icebreakers. How did the two of you meet? Well, this was way before Tinder. I'm just kidding. Friendster. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of those. <laughs> no. So I used to work at an agency called Saatchi and Saatchi. Mm -hmm. And one of my clients was Procter & Gamble, and I got to work on a very exciting brand called Head & Shoulders, the dandruff shampoo. <laughs> and Ruman, at the time, he was like the one guy in the room that was in charge of digital marketing on the Procter & Gamble side. So this was so long ago. This was probably like 18 years ago before. Yeah, that's early days for digital yeah, marketing. super early. And from my perspective, he was like the annoying guy in the room that would always be like, can you make sure the website's at the end of the commercial? I'm like, God, like, why does he say that in every single meeting? Like, who is this dude? Why is he in our meeting? And very quickly, just because he was super cool and he liked music. And so every time he was in New York, he'd always kind of ask for places to listen to music. I actually feel like he may have had a crush on one of my coworkers. I don't know if we should publicly <laughs> talk about that, but you guys always get um, the wrong one too. When you I know, to I, what it was. I guessed, I guessed the wrong coworker, but I guess you are admitting you did have a crush on somebody on my team, and I just always thought he was really smart and really great. And we kept in touch after, and these were the days of Friendster. So this was before Facebook was even publicly available. Roman, what was your first impression of Sharon? Uh, you know, similar. I'm a kid from Alabama. I had accidentally landed my way in one of the coolest jobs in the world. I thought Procter & Gamble was a law firm when they asked me to interview in B-School. Cincinnati is not in the top five biggest cities in the country, but it's in the top 20 or 30. And so for me to move up to the city, work for this multinational company, working on billion dollar brands, and I get to go to New York and Geneva and London and LA, it, it was the coolest job ever. And I get to go to these New York advertising agencies and Saatchi and Saatchi is like one of the best of the best. After many a work trip to New York City, Raman made the bold choice to move to New York. While in New York, Raman and Sharon would hang out over beers, and they became good friends. This was 10 years ago. Last year, before the podcast, I did this interview project where I interviewed 40 or 50 people from my life. Old bosses, old girlfriends, friends from industry. And one of the deepest conversations I had was with Sharon. And when that happened... I just kind of made a note to myself and I called her while she was riding the bus one day and said, hey, you want to do a podcast? And that's 
that's where we are today. Yeah. Yeah. That's how you asked her on a podcast date. That's, <laughs> Clearly. That's right. that's right. We're podcast siblings. Podcast pals. It's funny, <laughs> like I keep making all these references to the fact that we're in a relationship or it seems like we're married or we're dating. Like, you know, it's just kind of a natural thing. And he's always like, we're, we're platonically friends. I'm like, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, let's be clear. Her husband, her husband is like model, actor, he is. Rip. I have a very, and, I have a very hot husband. It's true. And and he's super cool. And I want to be super cool friends with this guy. So I'm not afraid of getting beat up by him. That'd be cool. But I want to be friends with him. So, no. <laughs> and you're like, I don't want to be publicly known as Sharon's podcast, you know, boyfriend or something. Yeah. Well, well, the yeah. irony is, on the, I my wife is Chinese American, Chinese American, Chinese Canadian, sort of. And when I make reference to that on the show, I've had a few guests or friends or listeners of the show who know I have a Chinese American wife, but they don't know my wife herself. And they're like, wait, wait, so you and Sharon? I'm like, no. (laughs) (laughs) Raman, you said that you grew up in Alabama and Sharon, I believe you grew up in New York city. I did. And so I'm kind of curious from you guys, like when you first became aware of your cultural identity and how that kind of affected you growing up. I think we have very different experiences, and I think that's what's kind of interesting about how we approach everything. So for me, I grew up in New York City. I'm the daughter of an immigrant, so my mom grew up in Hong Kong, and she came to the U.S. when she was in college. Mm -hmm. On the other side, on my dad's side, my, my grandparents on his side had come over, so his parents had immigrated here. My grandfather came over when he was only 15. So this was in the 20s, 1920s. And he came over as a paper son. So under fake papers, under fake name, served in the army. And then my grandmother came through Ellis Island almost 20 years after marrying my grandfather. So just really interesting story there. But my own experience has been that I grew up around Chinatown in New York. And I actually went to school in Chinatown for my elementary school years. So Race to me was actually not even at the forefront of my mind until I got to middle school because up until then, everyone around me was Asian. And although I would watch television and there would be white people on television primarily because back in the 80s, it was you know all blonde hair, blue eyed actors and actresses. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew I was Chinese and I was surrounded by Chinese culture and language and food and all of that. But I thought I was a white girl. Like I really thought I was white inside. Like all my dolls were white. The shows that I watched always had white people in it. It wasn't like an identity thing in that way. I think if you asked me to draw a picture of myself, I might have drawn a Chinese girl, but I might have also drawn like a blonde haired girl as well. Like I don't think it was any different in my mind, which is kind of weird, Mm -hmm. I know, as an adult looking back. Yeah, that's super interesting. Mm -hmm. Did your friends identify in a similar way to you? Maybe, because I think we all kind of aspired to be like either Marsha from the Brady Bunch or Mm -hmm. Punky Brewster or something. Like, you know, we we were watching all the same shows. And so we would dress like that. Like I remember having a ponytail at the side of my head and Mm -hmm. scrunchies and stuff. And I'd perm my hair and make it 
curly or I would use, I think it was called sun in at the time. Like you'd spray it in your hair and it's supposed to like make blonde highlights. So I was trying to like do blonde highlights and black hair, which makes no sense. Wow. <laughs> well, I mean, now it's, it's, it's super in, it's like, you know, balayage yeah. and highlights yeah. and yeah, yeah. dyeing your hair, but you're, you're ahead of the curve in I terms was, of fashion. <laughs> I was ahead of the curve, but I think it's also like a little bit of a racial identity crisis as well. And, yeah. um, it wasn't until I was in middle school when I was in more of a mixed race environment where I started to notice the real differences between Asian versus Hispanic versus black versus white because that school mm-hmm. was very mixed in that way. And that was only a couple of years of experiencing that. But then going back into high school, I went to a specialized school in New York where it was 90% Asian. So Did you go to die or yeah. Yeah, I went to Stuyvesant. It was mainly Asian. So it was kind of diving back into a sea of Asians again. And then college was sort of more more mixed race, but it wasn't until I was an adult that it really became clear that I looked different and therefore maybe would be perceived as being different. And so that was my experience. And I think when Roman shares his, it's like polar opposite of that. Yeah. So before we dive into Roman's experience, I mean, I, I just think that the fact that you identified as white growing up and then going to middle school that's more mixed, realizing that you're different. Did you ever have any sort of tensions between your beliefs and how how did that, I guess, transition in the way that you thought about yourself yeah. in terms of you know being Chinese or uh, being Asian? That's a good question. So in my middle school, there was a lot of tension between groups. And I think part of that is the age group too. Like in middle school, you tend to get really clicky, but mm-hmm. the cliques were based on racial background. So mm-hmm. it would be the Spanish kids all together sitting at the lunch tables, the black kids all sitting together at the lunch tables, the the Chinese kids all together at the lunch tables. And between those groups, there was you know, sometimes there was tension. Sometimes there were schoolyard fights. It's, it's kind of growing up in New York City and public school. I'm, I kind of shrugged my shoulders, like, yeah, that's just kind of how it was. But racism started to kind of happen too, with just different words that were being used or derogatory comments, or even maybe because of that, the cliques were stronger. It was almost like, well, if I'm different from those people and they don't accept me, then I'm going to stick with the people that look like me. Right. So. That's that's when it really became prevalent, I think, on top of mind for me. Yeah. A lot of the guests that I've spoken to who grow up in sort of a different situation from you, where they grow up primarily with white people or primarily with people of you know other races and they're basically the only Asian in the room, a lot of them have mentioned that, one, they felt very out of place, and then two, there's almost a sense of self-loathing. Mm. growing up. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that ever occurred to you or if it's because, you know, you were surrounded by people who look like you that you never felt like you were sort of an outsider. Yeah, I think I am lucky in that I I haven't felt that way, but I I do think that I've leaned into the comfort of wanting to feel like I was part of a group. So I did find myself gravitating towards groups of Asians just to find that sense of familiarity. And in some ways, I think as an adult looking back, I wonder if that was a lazy choice. Mm -hmm. I wonder if I would have expanded my own knowledge or my own connections with people or even kind of flex those social muscles if I had challenged myself to actually find someone in the room that looked different from me and tried Mm -hmm. to be friends with them. 
But in those moments, my automatic was, let me try to find someone that's familiar, that looks familiar. I feel like I speak with two different types of people, one type who finds comfort in being with other Asians and then one type who actively try to stay away from Asians. I think you just Remen. described the difference between us, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Remen, were you the type who was like, I don't want to be associated with other Asians? You know, you use the term self-loathing and let's be yeah. clear, I'm an insecure mess, <laughs> a ball of anxiety, but self-loathing isn't how I would describe it. My Asian identity was almost like a secret identity and mm-hmm. my entire existence is wrapped up in this thing called comic book morality because I read mm-hmm. too many comic books. I read too many comic books today. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think it was more of a secret identity thing than any self-loathing. Tell me about your secret identity. Parents are ethnically Indian. He's Hindu, was born in what's now Pakistan before partition. So they had to leave everything to go to India or be killed as a young boy. And his dad died when he was 19. And he left India in his early 20s before the mass Asian migration to this side mm-hmm. of the world. My mm-hmm. mom was actually born in Uganda, Africa. And when Idi Amin came into power and said, all the Asians get out or we're going to kill you, she fled as a refugee and left a very comfortable life and kind of had to live a very lower middle class life in England without her parents. Fast forward a few years past that arranged marriage, semi-arranged marriage, I say, and my parents moved to Alabama. My dad's an architect and a professor of architecture at a historically black college. A few years In, they settled in the town of Montgomery, Alabama. And Montgomery is the capital. It's about 45 minutes from Selma. But there was a very big difference between home and school life. School, as I think Sharon kind of mentioned, it's all about assimilation, especially in the Southeast. Like, I I feel like I wanted to be white because, to let's be clear, at school, things were very segregated. It wasn't forced segregation, but white kids sat at one table, black kids sat at another table. White people lived in one neighborhood, black people lived in another neighborhood. And the Asians and the Hispanics were all kind of caught in between during the day. And while my mom's best friend was a black teacher and our next door neighbors were effectively the Huxtables, we grew up around a lot of white people. And that was the society we aspired to be in. The buses we rode, the cartoons we watched, et cetera, et cetera. But at home in the weekends, the loud Indian music playing, the smells of Indian cooking for the rest of the week that my mom would do, going to temple once a month. But there were only 15 Indian families in Montgomery. And as a kid, I was assaulted by kids with a Confederate flag, and I've written about it. It wasn't a pleasant experience, and it was the thing that kind of shattered the difference between, you know, when I'm walking outside of my house, I'm I'm a white person. I can blend in. The, The secret identity of being an Indian is at home. But these asshole kids with a Confederate flag saw through that. And that kind of shattered it early on. And then I mean, there's the funny story of all of it. It wasn't until I was in my mid-20s, like working at P&G, that it was MLK weekend. And so I was like, oh, what are you doing for MLK? I was like, oh, you mean MLK Robert E. Lee? Like, because that's what we call it in Alabama, right? So wow, wow. It, it's a thing. And you become part of the society that you live in. If you don't know any better, and if you're trying to fit in, you just kind of go along with it. Were either of your parents tiger parents? We weren't free range kids like some Mm -hmm. podcasters I know. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, I was. I was very much free range, <laughs> raised like my parents fun, were like grass fed, grass fed free range. That's a, fun fact: that's actually going to be the teaser quote for your episode on our podcast. <laughs> grass fed free range. Um, honestly, here's what I will say: there were Indian parents who were way more strict. But both of my parents were teachers. So handwriting mm. and math lessons on the mm. weekend, if I'd done my homework, my mom knew all my teachers. So, But at the same time, my mom was the only Indian lady who didn't wear a sari to the dinner parties or temple. And I think it's because mom grew up in Africa and England, you know, but like <laughs> there was an expectation that you're going to settle down with an Indian person, but the world didn't end when I married a Chinese American woman or when my sister married a black guy. So I think education was where my parents were tiger or dragon parents. Yeah. Same for me. My parents, they were pretty Americanized because my dad was born here, but education was always super important. My mom really was a tiger mom. I mean, not in traditional ways, but definitely when it came to studying, all of my siblings went to specialized high schools. We definitely were on the the track of definitely pursuing higher ed, but also um, always trying to excel. Like we were always in gifted classes when we were growing up. And my mom was strict in interesting ways that I didn't understand at the time, but we were never allowed to sleep over at anyone's houses, which I thought was really weird growing up because that was just like something that we did. I mean, that yeah. everyone else did. And yeah. Well, Punky always, Brewster did. Or that, right, that's true, that all the white kids did on TV, rather, right, I should say that yeah. way. But she she never let us stay over at anyone's houses. I always had a curfew in high school, like, so other people were allowed to, you know, hang out till whenever, and I always had to be home by dinner time, which was 6 p.m., and when you're, like, 16, that's kind of early. That um, is pretty early, yeah. yeah. And dating was an interesting thing, like, they didn't really want me to date, but they kind of knew I was dating. But then, you know, so it's one of those things that Do we didn't want you to date Asians only. Oh yeah. Were they strict about that? Oh yeah. Yeah. In fact, so I married a black guy, didn't marry an Asian guy. And that was actually a little point of conflict when I first brought him home. And I was well into my early thirties by that time. So full on adult when I made my decision of who I'd fallen in love with and who I wanted to start a family with. And even when in my adult years, it took my mom a little while to come around. It actually took having a child. So when she became a grandma, that's when I think everything lifted and suddenly everything's fine. But that was that was a little bit of a shock for them that I ended up marrying a non-Chinese guy. Can we talk a bit about that? Because sure. you both are in interracial marriages. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because your podcast, Modern Minorities, it focuses on the stories of minorities from the lens of race and gender. How much of your interracial marriage has sort of impacted or influenced that? A lot. I know for me a lot. I think I was planning to marry a Chinese guy to be completely honest. Like I think growing up, if you had asked me who I'd end up with, I would have probably painted a picture of someone Asian. Did you date Chinese there, guys? I did. Okay. I dated primarily Chinese guys. Before I met my husband, it was, it was I would say it's like 97% Chinese and then the 3% was like white or other, oh. <laughs> like mixed maybe. And being in a relationship with someone outside of the culture has opened my eyes a lot to 
how similar everybody is. My husband and I have a very common shared belief and values and in priorities, even though we grew up in such different ways. Like he comes from a very Catholic household and his parents are from the Caribbean. And so it's just like a completely different, everything from foods and music. And they tell a lot of sex jokes, which I always thought was really weird. (laughs) (laughs) They do that in front of your parents? (laughs) They do that. Yeah. They kind of, it's just part of like, they do it in front of the parents. They kind of make some, you know, like jokes in front of the kids. And I'm like, what are we talking about here? (laughs) And now, a word from our sponsor, the Department of Health and Human Services. Oh yeah, HHS has still got it. Have they got a cure for for my holiday shopping blues? Sure, I mean, if you count preventing COVID as the cure for the holiday blues. Well, I guess it is that time again to encourage everyone to get their COVID vaccine. Oh yeah, vaccines. (laughs) You know, getting my vaccine card updates is like getting my subway card punched. If only it came with a free sandwich. I think it did for a while, uh, at least free donuts. But, uh, you know, Sharon, getting your latest updated COVID vaccine is even better with the holidays upon us, especially if it means getting more time to safely catch up with your family. Ah, yes. Updated vaccines now protect against the original COVID virus and Omicron, which means we all have more time to enjoy that home cooking and mom dishes that we've all been craving. Yeah, these latest vaccines are here just in time to make those family gatherings safer and extra special. Boom, just did it. Uh, did what? Find the perfect holiday gift for all your family, friends, and favorite <laughs> podcast co-hosts? No, even better. I just scheduled my free vaccine today. Oh, snap. That was pretty easy. Damn straight. Find updated COVID vaccines for everyone over the age of five at vaccines.gov. Just be sure to bring candy for everyone five and up. I'm a big fan of candy, for sure. Um, and our kids do like a good candy taste to, to go with all of their vaccines. Kids, anyone five and up deserves a post-vaccine candy treat, uh, (laughs) present company included. It is the holiday season after all. Fair enough. COVID is serious stuff, and we want to make sure all of you are ridiculously thoughtful, stylish, hip, and favorite podcast listeners are getting the latest and greatest COVID vaccines. Especially with those amazing holiday sweaters. (laughs) That's right, Sharon. COVID is still serious stuff, so we've all got to do everything we can to keep ourselves and the people we love safe. Let's all do our part to protect ourselves, our families, and our communities this holiday season. Talk to a doctor if you have any questions. You can find the latest vaccines near you at vaccines.gov. We can do this together. This spot was paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, who we are big fans of. But now, back to our show. How do you guys both feel about raising multiracial kids? My daughter's four, and she's starting to ask more questions about it. This is the year we're actually going to make a big deal about Diwali and Chinese New Year's. I was actually talking to my daughter's daycare school about that. The thing I have to tell her first is you are American. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Because the part of town we live in, the previous places we lived, it was very United Colors of Benetton, multiracial. My daughter's kind of in the same position I was in as it's she's the token brown person in the room Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I need her to know she's brown but know that that makes her special and at the same time that doesn't make her special it's like this this weird needle to thread and my wife and I talk a lot about it in this moment and I talk to my sister about it because like Sharon she's married a black guy you know and she's Mm -hmm. society's going to view her kids and Sharon's kids as black 
people. Right. It's a loaded, exhausting thing that I think way too much <laughs> about. The podcast is actually therapy for it because we talk to people in interracial marriages, black people, white people, gay people, parents, non-parents. And I'm seeking these answers because I, I don't have it. I'm crowdsourcing it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's uh, it's so important that we talk about it, especially when you look at the number of multiracial people who are in the U.S. They make up 7% of the U.S. population, which is actually a larger number than Asians in the U.S. And it's only going to increase. When my white friends bring that up to me, oh, that's so special. Your daughter's interracial. I push back a little because... I'm sorry, all white Americans are mixed breed as well. You know, you're a quarter Polish, you're half Irish, you've got a grandma who's German or Italian. And the thing I'm yeah. pushing back on is this, this call out that we are unique because we're half Chinese, half black, half Chinese, half Indian. I'll grant you a little bit of that. This is America, whether it's a melting pot or a mosaic, or as our past guest Stefan said, kind of a thing of chili. Like what makes us special is the diversity and the mixture here. Even the whitest of the white right here are mixed up. And that's there was there was family controversy when an Italian boy brought home a Polish girl. And how are you going to raise the kids? Catholic and Protestant. Oh my gosh. You know, like so I think we're just doing what's normal in America. People come here and mix it up. That that's what this place is about. I, I listen to the way Roman talks about it. And I'm like, wow, that's I just always feel like we're so we're so different, Roman, me and you. I feel like my kids are super special because they're multiracial. And I think that they have the the benefit of of coming from two very different backgrounds that are molded into one. I do agree though that the way the world is going to see them is probably through one lens, just from the color of their skin. And so I do wonder what that's going to mean for them because they are, they're both boys. And I think black boys are just the way that our world is unfortunately right now. They're probably going to face challenges still that exist today while they're growing up. And, and I'm a little nervous about that, but I also, I try not to let that get in the way of, of how we're raising them. And so some of what I've done is I've tried to find ways that they can be immersed in very diverse environments. Like mm -hmm. when we were in New York, they went to the United Nations International School. And so that was truly an environment where they were some of the only American kids that were in the school. And that was kind of interesting because it would, like during flag day, you'd see flags from all over, from Kenya, from France, from Russia. Like literally these kids grew up in those countries or yeah. had those countries as their home countries. And you'd see my two little Blasian boys carrying, you know, their USA flag. And I'd be like, that is like just such a beautiful thing. Cause that's such a testament to what we stand for in this country. But I wonder how long I can keep that bubble going. We live in LA now. The school that they're going to is primarily white. So that's already been burst. They really are one of the few kids of color in their current school. And I think they're going to face challenges that Unfortunately, I personally won't be able to relate to one because I'm not male and also I'm not black. As a parent, I want to to put them in spaces where they know they do belong or they know they can be accepted or they know that there are people from all different backgrounds and all different colors and walks of life and that they're not different and they're not less than what currently exists right now in the yeah. U.S. 
Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what really struck me about Roman's comment that like, this is how we do it here in the US. It's interesting because I feel like it's so American and it's absolutely what I believed in prior to moving back to China. Like prior to moving back to China, I lived all over the States. And what you're taught in school is that America is this place where people are able to come here and in Raman's terms, like mix it up and be able to practice a lot of freedom. And I think that with a lot of what's happening today, it doesn't feel that way anymore. It, it feels like there's two factions. There's one faction that still believes that this is what America should be. And then there's another faction that's saying America belongs to white people. To be clear, when Sharon brought a black boy home, when I brought a Chinese girl home, it was not, oh, it's the American dream. It was, what? And yeah. that same thing <laughs> happened with when a Catholic brought a Protestant home, when an Italian brought a Polish girl home. There's always controversy at that moment of inevitable. I, ha- I had this conversation with my parents when they got onto me for dating a white girl and not an Indian girl. I was like, what did you expect? <laughs> you raised me in Alabama. <laughs> like, there's literally 15 families, and that one girl is really weird. <laughs> we sort of grazed the edges of what's currently happening with COVID and anti-Asian sentiment, and then with Black Lives Matter, racial injustices. If you guys are open to it, talk a bit about how that's sort of affected you. So like starting with COVID and anti-Asian sentiment, I'm curious from both of you, if you guys have experienced anything or seen anything or how that sort of impacted you. I had a run in a few months ago that really shook me. This was probably in late March, early April. And it's when COVID was really kind of at its peak with everyone panicking. And we were thinking about leaving the city and driving upstate to stay there. Mm-hmm. And we ended up stopping off in Scranton, Philadelphia. And we booked a last minute hotel room at maybe it was like a Hilton or something. And so we were one of the few people in the hotel because the whole town had been shut down. And I was in the hallway of our floor of the hotel with my husband. I think we were probably just, you know, leaving the room to grab a couple things to bring back. I was walking down the hallway towards the elevator and on the other side of us was another couple and it was an older white couple that was walking towards us. And when the woman saw me, she froze. And that's the first time I had ever experienced someone responding to me in that way. And she froze and I didn't understand what was happening at that moment. And I also didn't directly connect it to she was responding to me in that way. I just thought maybe something happened or she like forgot something in the room. And so she just froze and she stood there. And I kept, I kind of looked at her and I was like, hmm, I hope she's okay. I kept walking towards the elevator, pressed the button. We were wearing masks and all of that. So we had like all of our gear on. Mm-hmm. And a few minutes later, she she ended up in the same elevator bank and she saw us again and then she stopped again and she refused to go any farther. And so the elevator came, the doors opened, my husband and I entered the elevator, the doors closed. And I looked at him and I was like, is that because she thinks I have COVID? And he looked at me and he was like, yeah, he's like, welcome to my world. And I was like, oh my God, like I've experienced people, unfortunately, responding to my husband in that way sometimes 
because he's a black guy walking down the street and I've actually mm. either been next to him when that's happened or I've like witnessed it. But I had never experienced someone responding to me that way. And it was just this moment of like not feeling safe. Like not that she was going to do anything to us, but I just, I, I really felt very unsafe at that moment. And I felt just that energy coming off of her, just negative energy. And it was just really not based on anything besides the fact that she noticed that a Chinese person was standing in the hallway and I might have COVID and she didn't want to come any closer. And it was enough to panic her where she literally couldn't take any more steps. And she definitely did not want to share an elevator with us. And actually that that whole incident made made us decide to just turn back around and go back to New York City because I was then genuinely afraid that if we were going somewhere else where we were one of the few families of color, that mm-hmm. I would be putting myself at risk or even my kids at risk mm-hmm. by being in that situation. And it really opened my eyes to what other groups of people experience all the time just based on how they look. The thing that Chinese people have been going through in the last five years, I think all of us have had the moment, right? And 9-11 for brown people was that. I have a beard out of laziness, but I became clean shaven every time I traveled. I would always pack a razor. Mm. Whenever I would come back in the country from a backpacking trip to the Middle East or India or Europe or Latin America, I'd always pack a clean shirt for the Atlanta airport. Make sure I had my Alabama hat, spit up my accent a little bit when I'm saying thank you to the customs agent. The Southern charm comes out when I need to disarm. And I hate that I have to do that. It's this identity, this code switching, but it's a... It's a survival mechanism. But to, to your husband's point, Sharon, like this is what he lives with every day. Like I deal with it at the airport. Chinese people are living with it more so now, Asian people, all East Asians, frankly, in the era of COVID. And I, I don't know how to solve for it. Like honestly, to kind of bring it back to our show, that's why we do our show. Like the thesis of our show is if people can understand others' experiences, if we can generate more understanding and empathy, whether you're a straight person hearing a gay person talk about their experiences, whether it's me, a man, hearing what women are talking about. That's the only way I know how to solve it. I'm curious to hear from you guys around, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, not so much in in the movement itself, but internally within our own community, There's been a lot of things that we were talking about around addressing our own anti-Blackness within the community. You both have family members who are Black. And how that sort of plays in your family dynamic and whether or not, you know, you've had to sort of dispel certain ideologies within your own family. Hassan Minaj has a really good episode of Patriot Act where he talks about specifically the Indian community. I mm-hmm. highly recommend watching it. But some of the things he says are literally happening in a family WhatsApp group that I have with family in California, Canada, yeah. UK. But my mom's best friend is black. Her goddaughter is black. Two of my mom's grandchildren are black. Right. Uh, and since she's lived in Africa for a period of her life. That's the interesting part. My mom's first experience with black people protesting was people with guns kicking her out of the country as a little girl. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I'm not saying her point of view is right, to be very clear. But I am saying you need to understand where people are coming from. And they had a very different experience than we did. I think there's always the guess who's coming home for dinner moment, that that really awkward thing where things are said, where real beliefs are drawn bare because your daughter's bringing home a black man. But something you have said multiple times on our show, Sharon, is when those kids are born and that kid looks like you. Children are the most disarming 
vehicle. I even feel it walking down my white street with my beautiful daughter. When she waves and says something silly to someone, people melt. It's kids. Uh, yeah. Kids solve it all, man. Like yeah. that's that's the most uplifting thing that I've seen. The only thing I've seen to truly disarm this. Yeah, I agree. I think I, I see it happen in my own family. My parents had their own beliefs about not just black people, but really anybody that wasn't Chinese, if I'm going to be honest, right? It's like, yeah, um, Asians can win the racist Olympics if they really yeah, want to. Yeah, for, sure. <laughs> for sure. We're good at it. We- I, I would call it like the judgment Olympics. I feel like we're just very judgy people. Yeah. We like to judge others and it's just part of the culture. And, and the thing is like Asians are so frank, right? Yeah. Just, like really frank about everything. Definitely. They don't sugarcoat anything. Yeah. Definitely. But after my kids were born... I literally noticed a change in both my parents. My dad has even said that he just doesn't see race anymore. And I don't know if that's the solution. Like, I don't think the solution is to become colorblind. But I know that he acknowledges that when he looks at his own grandkids who are half black, he doesn't see them as being different from him because they have his nose or they have his ears. They call him up and they call him Gung Gung. And even though they are of a mixed race background, they're people. And I do think it's true that kids have that ability to to make people see beyond just what's superficial and to really kind of connect people on the very human level. I feel like there's hope in that. And I think there's got to be some way that we can unite each other in that same way. I don't know if it's making everybody have babies and like, you know, just having a lot of babies. <laughs> With your podcast, it's amazing that you guys are talking to people with the lens of gender and race. And I think it's so important, especially since the two of you are raising multiracial kids. What's a key message that you're hoping to get across through your podcast? I tell this story to a lot of our guests right before we hit record of back in 08, during the Arizona-Alabama immigration law where you could get pulled over. And if you didn't have ID, you'd go to jail. And I had a very close white friend when I was living in Cincinnati. And he's more of the Mitt Romney Republican type where I was literally knocking on doors for Obama. And he's like, I don't see why it's such a big deal. Like, just carry ID. And I was like, dude, my dad's more likely to get pulled over than yours because he's brown. And my dad's a forgetful guy who forgets his wallet. My dad would spend the night in jail and not yours. And in that moment, I don't remember if I won the argument. But in that moment, he said, oh, I never thought about it that way. That's the point of the show. I just need more people in this world to say that. Never thought about it that way. Mm-hmm. And if that happens, the the world my daughter inherits 15, 20 years from now is better. I love that. I feel like you guys could have named the uh, the podcast. I never thought about it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get it started on podcasting. <laughs> Thank you both so much for sharing your personal stories. I really appreciate the fact that you guys started a platform and you know, created a space to talk about gender and race and talk about not just like surface level stuff, but like digging deep into strong conversations around people's upbringings and what sort of makes them tick. I want to end this uh, episode with our signature question to both of you. How do you guys intend to rock the boat? I want people to think about someone else's experience more. I don't know if that rocks the boat, but that that tilts the boat a little bit more to things being better. Love it. Yeah, I'm going to echo that. I want people to challenge themselves to reach out and connect with people in a way that they haven't before. 
And I think that is the purpose of both of our podcasts, like the one that we're on now, as well as the one that we host. Absolutely. As well as just, it's a big part of the human experience. All you need is love. (laughs) All you need is love. Kudos to you for doing this. And thank you for having us on your show. That was Sharon Lee Tony and Raman Segel, the hosts of Modern Minorities Podcast. I recently did a fun interview for their show, which you can also go check out if you're curious. I've included the link in the show notes. Until then, I'll see you all next time. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi, mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.